Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1686, the Spanish governor of Florida sent out a group of men to locate and expel a reported settlement of Frenchmen near the Mississippi River. The expedition, headed by Marcus Delgado, consisted of 13 Spanish soldiers and 40 Native American warriors. The group departed from Mission San Luis in what is now Tallahassee, and headed northwest towards the Mississippi River. But in September of 1686, their path was blocked by water. Of this location, Delgado wrote in his journal, there's a clayey swamp and in its center, a stream which has 36 feet of width and a depth of six feet, and the swamp itself has half a league of breadth. It was thick, and it was necessary to cut the path. Though not named as such in his journal, the locations mentioned in the lead-up to this stream and clay swamp identify the place he and his men crossed as what is now known as the Chipola River, a 92.5-mile tributary of the large Apalachicola River. Yet the exact location of the crossing is somewhat more intriguing. Based on the geographical information provided by Delgado, there is only one place along the Chipola that matches such a description. A place that eventually became home to a wealthy young family that moved to Florida from North Carolina to start their life, but were instead met by tragedy leaving behind the legend of a spirit who is said to continue to walk here at what is now known as Bellamy Bridge. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you are listening to Southern Gothic.
Elizabeth Jane Croom was born sometime in 1819, the younger daughter of Major General William Croom, who commanded North Carolina's troops during the War of 1812. The Crooms were a very wealthy family. In addition to his military acclaim, William Croom owned multiple plantations and property in North Carolina. But when Elizabeth was only 10 years old, her father died, leaving her an immense amount of wealth, including his extensive holdings in land, slaves, and other valuables. Then, as a young teenager, she fell madly in love with a handsome medical student named Samuel C. Bellamy. The pair had met through their siblings. Elizabeth's older sister, Anne, was married to Samuel's brother, Edward. And like Elizabeth and Anne, these brothers were also members of a wealthy North Carolina planting family. Samuel was born in 1810 and educated at well-respected private schools, eventually attending the prestigious medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. As was common at the time for children of such background, Elizabeth and Samuel shared a prolonged courtship, exchanging many letters as he finished his medical studies. But soon enough, their engagement was announced and wedding plans quickly followed. Legend says that at this time, both couples, Elizabeth and Samuel, as well as Anne and Edward, had decided to move to Florida, where Samuel built a magnificent mansion for his new bride, and that Elizabeth was so taken with her soon-to-be home that she requested their wedding take place in its stunning rose gardens. Naturally, the bride's wish was granted, and on May 11th, 1837, Elizabeth and Samuel said their marriage vows among the blossoming roses. It is said that Elizabeth ended her vows with the simple line, I will love you always and forever. Never will I leave you. Unfortunately, soon enough, tragedy struck. After exchanging vows, the newly wedded couple and their guests retired to the inside of the mansion for a reception and grand ball. The celebration was extravagant with abundant food, drink, music, and dancing. And everyone enjoyed themselves immensely. Eventually, though, Elizabeth found herself weary from the long day of preparation and excitement. So she excused herself to the upstairs master suite where she could rest for a few moments before rejoining the party downstairs. But she was so exhausted that she soon fell asleep, seated in a cushioned chair. Her luxurious wedding gown pooled around her. It is believed that it is then, while the young bride was sleeping, 
that her arms must have knocked over a candelabra, awaking her suddenly, immersed in bright light, intense heat, and agonizing pain. Her elaborate wedding dress had caught fire. Meanwhile, the celebration continued on downstairs, while partygoers were unaware of the flames that Elizabeth had woken to until they heard her screams. The bride soon appeared at the top of the stairs, terrified and in agony, engulfed in flames. Her new husband and wedding guests quickly attempted to save her and were able to extinguish the fire. But the damage was done, and Elizabeth Croom Bellamy was badly burned. She languished in pain for several days before succumbing to these injuries on May 11, 1837. And it's said that the last words to cross her lips before she died were the same as her final vow to her husband. I will love you always and forever. Always and forever. Never will I leave you. After the death of his beautiful new bride, Samuel attempted to carry on, but instead sank deep into depression and alcohol, eventually succumbing to the darkness when 15 years later, he killed himself with a straight razor while in Chattahoochee, Florida. His last request was to be buried beside his beloved wife. Unfortunately, his wishes were disregarded as the church viewed suicide a sin. So Samuel Bellamy was buried in an unmarked grave and forgotten. But his legend claims, even in death, Elizabeth Bellamy stayed true to her vow. It is said that since the day she died, she continues to walk the swamps around what has since become known as Bellamy Bridge, forever in search of her true love, so they can be reunited once more. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you.
Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Though the legend of Bellamy Bridge claims that Elizabeth and Samuel were married at their grand mansion in Florida in May of 1837, the truth is somewhat different. Historical records, including family correspondence, marriage documents, and newspaper articles, all indicate that just a month after Samuel graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, he and Elizabeth married on July 15, 1834, at the Croom family estate in Lenore County, North Carolina, not in Florida. But the wealth and extravagance of their respective families was certainly true. Wealth, which was far beyond the norm for the time, as well as for the vast majority of men and women who lived in the antebellum South, these families were part of the elite, the wealthiest of the wealthy. And Samuel and Elizabeth were likely what today would be considered aristocratic in upbringing, lifestyle, and education. At the time of their wedding, Samuel was 24 years old and Elizabeth was only 15 which during this era were considered reasonable ages. In addition, the wealthy young couple had everything necessary for the possibility of a bright future. But although the legend would have you believe that Elizabeth died tragically on her wedding day, that too is in fact false. In December of 1835, while still living in North Carolina, Elizabeth gave birth to a son named Alexander. It was not until early 1836 when Samuel and Elizabeth, along with Edward and Anne Bellamy, decided to move permanently to Florida. The two families migrated together, along with their children, very likely in a long wagon train, 
carrying the belongings of two households, an overseer, and more than a hundred slaves. During the 1820s, North Carolina farmlands had begun suffering from overuse, with decreasing crop yields each year. So a wave of wealthy North Carolina planters began taking advantage of the fertile, open land of Florida, which was rich in nutrients. Of course, among these wealthy families were both the Crooms and Bellamy's. So by the time of Elizabeth and Samuel's relocation south, their families had already established residences and plantations there, prospering greatly. It was Edward and Anne who purchased the property on which the infamous Bellamy Bridge is now located. While Samuel and Elizabeth purchased a large tract of land on Baker Creek, roughly three miles northwest of Mariana, establishing a plantation surrounding Jackson County's Rock Arch Cave, known today as Gerard's or Sam Smith Cave. Fittingly, they named their property Rock Cave Plantation. But in spite of these inaccuracies between legend and fact, Elizabeth's life at Rock Cave did in fact tragically end on May 11, 1837, just as the legend suggests. However, it likely was not a violent fire, but rather the dreaded mosquito-borne disease, malaria, which caused severe fever, tiredness, vomiting, and headaches, oftentimes resulting in coma and death. Elizabeth was only 18 years old at the time of her death. But worst of all, her 18-month-old son, Alexander, died only seven days later after contracting the disease as well. It is likely that in her final days, Elizabeth and Alexander were in the care of her sister Anne, as upon her death, she was buried in a small cemetery near her sister's home, as opposed to the home she shared with Samuel. And Alexander was laid to rest beside his mother. The exact location of these graves has since been lost to the public. It was said she was laid to rest in a grove of trees near where Bellamy Bridge stands today, but it is believed the exact location is now on private property and no longer accessible. As for the Grand Mansion, which the legend says Samuel built for Elizabeth, the property never actually stood during her lifetime. Construction of the great house began nine months after her passing, and like many old antebellum homes, it was demolished in the 20th century, its memory preserved only by faded photographs. Tragically, the fate of Samuel Bellamy himself is accurate 
and the legend of his wife's ghost. Following the death of Elizabeth and Alexander, he fell into a severe depression and alcoholism that spiraled more and more out of control with each passing year. Until finally, after 16 years, he cut his own throat with a straight razor on December 28, 1853. Samuel Bellamy was only 44 years old when he died, and as far as anyone knows, he was buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in Chattahoochee, forever lost to time. Just because Elizabeth Bellamy did not actually die in a wedding day inferno, the stories of her ghostly wanderings are certainly plentiful. The earliest written, known documentation of Elizabeth Bellamy's ghost was a single line in an 1890 newspaper. It read simply, The Lady of Bellamy Bridge has been seen of late. This reference was 53 years after the death of Elizabeth Bellamy. But what is most intriguing about this newspaper quote is that it is only a single sentence, no more, no less. The implication that the story and plethora of sightings were already widely known enough that people did not need any further explanation about what and who is being mentioned. In the 1980s, several older, lifelong residents of Mariana told similar stories of a ghostly young woman dressed in white and could be seen silently moving through the trees of the swamp near Bellamy's Bridge. Additional stories claim that the woman is silent in her steps but is often heard sobbing. Yet the mystery is why did this ghost story, rooted in an already tragic death, evolve into a tale of a burning bride? It is believed that the burning bride version of the Lady of Bellamy Bridge first became popular in the 1940s. It seems to have been a result of a mistaken belief that the book, Marcus Warland, written by Caroline Lee Hentz, had been based upon events taking place in Jackson County. Hentz was an antebellum novelist, most noted for her anti-abolitionist sentiment in her novel, The Planter's Northern Bride, which was written as a rebuttal to the great anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. In 1852, hence published Marcus Warland, which featured a series of stories based upon real people and events that took place in and around Columbus, Georgia, where Hence was living at the time. In the book, Hence tells the story of Cora, a young slave woman who was held in such high regard by her mistress that she was allowed to have her wedding in the big house. Cora, exhausted by the planning 
and excitement, fell asleep seated on a chair before the fire. She woke to discover her dress had caught fire, quickly engulfing her. Although many rushed to assist her, including the mistress of the house, Cora died from her wounds. She was buried in the family cemetery, and several days later, people began seeing her ghost near the site. Caroline Lee Hentz wrote, Turning away, she threw herself into a large easy chair in front of the fire, and in spite of the excited state of her feelings, she fell asleep in her downy nest. She had been up almost all the preceding night. How long she slept, she knew not. She was awakened by a sense of heat and suffocation, as if her lungs were turned to fire. Starting up, she found herself... The story is near identical to the legend of Elizabeth Bellamy. And the twist in the tale told by Caroline Lee Hentz is the name of Cora's mistress, identified in the novel as Mistress Bellamy. But what truly cemented Hentz's story into Elizabeth Bellamy's was that the author moved to Mariana, Florida in 1852 and lived there until her death in 1856. Naturally, over time, people began to incorrectly assume that since Hentz lived in Mariana and wrote of Mistress Bellamy and the Burning Bride, that the story had taken place there as well. And with no one left who would be able to remember the exact details of a wedding marred by fire in 1837, it likely merged into the well-known local ghost story of Elizabeth Bellamy, the lady of Bellamy's Bridge. But although The Burning Bride isn't the story of Elizabeth Bellamy, it doesn't discredit Elizabeth's, for she was and remains, as those in 1890 called her, the Lady of Bellamy Bridge, forever walking through the swampy forests looking for her lost love. And as for the real burning bride, Cora, and the real Mistress Bellamy of Hence's novel, all attempts thus far to locate more information have failed. Columbus-area newspapers of the day took no note of the death of a slave on her wedding day. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Oddly enough, for a story about the Lady of Bellamy Bridge, the bridge itself is not even a part of the legend. It is merely that its location was near to Elizabeth's final resting place. And so it is said that she has been seen there on her nightly walks through the swamps, searching for her long-lost love. The bridge itself sits on property that was purchased by Edward and Anne Bellamy in 1836. They owned the land until the eve of the Civil War, operating it under the name Terrebonne Plantation. Bellamy initially farmed sugar, rice, cotton, and other substance crops, but eventually concentrated solely on the production of Sea Island cotton. What was once open fields of crops is today covered by a floodplain forest. As for their home, it was destroyed by an accidental fire, and today nothing remains but a barely discernible cistern to show that the Grand Bellamy Mansion once stood there at all. Yet it wasn't till 1851, a decade and a half after Elizabeth's death, that the first wooden bridge was built over the Chipola River. The Jackson County Board of Commissioners approved a new road to be built from near Campbellton to Port Jackson, thus requiring its construction, which is credited to builders Dr. Horace Eli and Bird B. Hathaway, although it is likely that much of the actual labor was done by slaves. Early records even identify the location as Bellamy's Bridge. During the Civil War, the bridge was closely guarded by Confederate troops who sought to protect it from Union raiders and deserter outlaws that frequented the area. As the bridge served as an essential way for both civilians and soldiers to cross the river, 
Unfortunately, it was never attacked. In 1872, a second wooden bridge was commissioned to replace the first, which had succumbed to significant destruction by elements and time. This new bridge would only last two years before it was swept away during a major flood of the Chipola River, replaced by yet another of wooden construction in 1874. The steel frame bridge structure that remains today was not constructed until 1914. It reaches 119 feet long and is now the oldest bridge of its type in Florida. It was actively used as a crossing point until 1963, when it was finally closed to vehicle traffic after a nearby concrete bridge was built. Although the wooden planks have since fallen into the river below, the steel frame of Bellamy's bridge remains largely intact today. And in 2012, the Bellamy Bridge Heritage Trail was opened to allow public access to the structure. But still today, many claim the Lady of Bellamy Bridge walks each night, continuing to keep the vows she once made to her husband almost two centuries before. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Little Shacks. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.